Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. This is God's word. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negeb. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help. Lord, as we look to your word to better understand what it means to believe you and to obey you, pray that you would stir up in us True faith. For those who don't yet have saving faith, Lord, give it to them. Let them hear your word and believe your word. Lord, for those of us who have saving faith by your grace, would you strengthen us as we look to your word? In Christ's name, amen. Well, two weeks ago, uh, in Genesis, uh, at the beginning of chapter 11, we were at the Tower of, da- uh, of Babel. And we, and we talked about there our purpose in living for the glory of God. Last week, in Abram's genealogy, we saw that it was by the grace of God alone that the Lord called Abram. For the glory of God alone, we are saved by the grace of God alone through faith alone. So Abram, or as he will come to be known, Abraham, is often spoke of in the New Testament as the living proof from ages past that God saves us through faith and not by our works. Galatians 3 attests to this. Galatians 3 verses 5 to 9. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. In the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Interesting how he's saying that the gospel was preached even here in Genesis 12. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So it's not just Galatians, though, that we see that 
proclamation of salvation by faith. We see it in, in Romans as well. Romans 4, verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Paul's reminding his readers in Galatians and Romans that the people of Israel didn't come through Moses. They came through Abraham. Therefore, their origins are not as a people who were given the law. That's not what created them. Their origins are the gracious call of God on a man who responded in faith. That's the, that's the theme song of the people of God all through the ages. And as we read earlier in Hebrews, this faith, as, as Mike read for us, is present at the very beginning of Abraham's story. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. So that New Testament lens is what we're going to read Abraham's story through. What better way to do this? And as we study these nine verses, I hope that we'll better understand where this faith is coming from. And what it is exactly, and how it is saving faith. So, that's kind of our, our journey today. What is faith? We're going to look to Abraham to, to teach us that. Uh, and, and the starting place for any teaching about saving faith is always, always, always the voice of God. Romans ten seventeen says, so faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Do we see that? In Genesis 12, amen, we do. Look at verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, there it is. It all begins with the word of God. The Lord said to Abram, and then you have his command, go from your country and your kindred, your father's house to the land I will show you. It all begins with the word of God. I told you last week, I don't know what this was like. The Bible doesn't tell us. Was this a vision? Was it a dream? Was Abram just tending his sheep one day, tending his flock, or was he, was he fetching water from the well and he heard the voice of God from the clouds or in the water? We don't know. Moses in Genesis, the author of Genesis, doesn't tell us. The emphasis is simply on God's speaking. Once you see that, that's the emphasis. That's what's important here. The emphasis is on God's speaking. How did... How did Abram know then, if it is God speaking, and that's the emphasis, your next question, if it isn't already, it might be, how did Abram know that it was God speaking? Have you thought about that? How did Abram know that it was God speaking to him, here in verse 1, and not a, just a hallucination or an aberration or a demon or an angel or something else? Well, Abram knew that God was speaking to him the same way that the disciples in the New Testament knew that God was speaking to them when they were called. So, so th think, think back to Matthew, when we studied Matthew years ago. Matthew chapter 4, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he, Jesus, saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, brother casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And immediately... They left their nets and followed him. 
And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Well, look at the way that that the Lord calls Matthew, whose whose name is Levi in, in another language. So in Mark, we see this account. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Same thing happened with Abram, isn't it? Follow me. How does God's voice to the disciples and to Abram have such recognizability. Is that a word? This today. How how does it have, how do they recognize it so quickly? Oh, that's God. Well, John tells us, Jesus tells us in John, John chapter 10, verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow. Follow me. So there's this principle that Jesus is teaching us in the Gospels that the sheep of God's flock know the voice of the shepherd. The voice of God, the voice that spoke creation into existence from nothing, calls Abram from his idol worshiping life, and Abram knows that it's God. Because the Lord God is the shepherd, and Abram is the sheep of his flock. And we see this sheep and shepherd language used, used by, by, uh, by God in Joshua when he describes how he brought Abram out of his paganism. We, we read this, this passage last week, but I want to point something different out to you this week. Joshua 24, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Remember, that was our grace alone saves us passage. Then I took your father Abraham, from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan. God took him and he led him. That's sheep and shepherd language. You see it? Sheep and shepherd language. The Lord is the shepherd. He took his sheep and he led him elsewhere. Or if you prefer it in less pastoral terms, God chose Abram. This is what we call the doctrine of election. We're going to see it described this way by God in Genesis chapter 18. So in just a few chapters, God's going to say, For I have chosen him, speaking of Abraham, I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. The people of Israel in in Nehemiah will echo this, this Doctrine of election, when they sing this beautiful song of confession in Nehemiah chapter 9, they sing to the Lord, you are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. God's choosing Abram is expressed, it's made manifest in his call to Abram. You see that connection, right? Sheep, hear the voice, they obey. You with me? God calls 
Abram, and he obeys. Faith begins with the word of God, and the word of God comes recognizably to those whom the grace of God is given. We say that one more time. Faith begins with the word of God, and the word of God comes recognizably as the word of God to those to whom the grace of God has been given. That's how Abram knew it was God. Because the grace of God had been given to him. Because Abram is sheep. And the Lord is the shepherd. Well, God speaks to Abram first. And look what he commands him in, in, his, in his call of Abram. Four little commands here. Go from your country and from your kindred and from your father's house and go to the land that I will show you. There's that unknown part we saw in Hebrews. Show it to you. You don't know where it is yet. I'm going to show it to you. I want you to think here for a moment about what this call is. 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 I want you to think about this call. Because it's harder than it sounds. Today, to us, moving within our own country or even within the globalized economy, it's not quite as consequential as it would have been for Abram. Abram was being asked to leave behind his country and his kindred. That means he's leaving behind the protection of his tribe. We don't, we don't think in tribal means, except for maybe this Tuesday, but we don't think in tribal means the way that Abram would have. This was Abram's reality. So, so think of this as, if you've studied the, the history of, of this land Think of this as a Navajo in 1750 being called to leave his tribe, his land, and go north into Ute territory. Sworn enemies. Sworn enemies for as long as the generations can remember. Or even more recently, think back to uh, in Rwanda, you have a Tutsi being called to leave his tribe and go down into Hutu territory all by himself. That's, that's the consequences of the dangers of Abram's call. Leaving your nation, as Abram's being called to do, means leaving the protection of your people. But he's also being asked to leave behind what was a sure and comfortable future. So leaving your father's house means leaving behind your inheritance, right? Leaving behind your family's wealth. That would have been shared amongst the sons. And when Abram leaves it behind, he's leaving, he's leaving that behind. Abram's being called to, to leave behind the safety and the comfort of his people. He's, being, he's called to, to leave behind a certain future, an earthy future that he can see. We'll see in a moment what he's being called to, but I don't want you to miss what he's being called from. And recognize this also, it's not like God is calling Abraham to leave behind his land and his family in the midst of an economic crisis. So this is not potato famine in Ireland causing people to leave behind family and land for the U.S. It's not the Dust Bowl in the U.S. that brought many, some of your families here to California. Abram's exodus from Mesopotamia was not in a crisis. He had work. He had family. He had land. He had wealth. God's call to him is to leave behind that worldly certainty, those things he could put his hands to, the comfort and the protection that he had there for a 
another inheritance, as Hebrews 11.8 says. We'll see next week when he gets to Canaan. He's not in Canaan very long before there is a crisis. And he has to leave Canaan and go to Egypt. So to sum it up, we could say Abram is being called from a life of what is seen to what is unseen. He's being called from inheriting the wealth of his earthly father to being called to inheriting the promises that he can't touch. He can't see promises of his heavenly father. And those promises are seven in number. Let's look at those for a moment as we uh, continue in our passage. We see those seven promises that the Lord made to Abram when he called him out. I'm calling you from this and I'm calling you to this. What's he calling him to? These seven things. Uh, The first one we see in verse 2. I will make of you a great nation. So Abram's to leave behind the nation, the people group that he belongs to, his kindred, his father's house, because that's the way that God will make a new nation. He will not be the Terahites. He will be the Hebrews, the Israelites one day. A great nation will come from Abram. The second promise is a blessing. He says, I will bless you. What does that mean, I will bless you? Well, this might make some of us uncomfortable, but whenever we see this in Genesis, it's associated with two things, kids and wealth. Since the promise of a nation is lots of kids, came in that first promise, this blessing most likely refers to material wealth. Gold and silver and cattle and sheep and goats and an army to defend him and servants and so on. This kind of stuff that we're going to see next week when Abram comes out of Egypt. We'll see God's material blessing on Abram there. The third promise is that he will make his name great. I will make your name great. We talked about this a little bit last week. The Babylites were building a tower and a nation, a city, to make a name for themselves. God is going to make a name for Abram. He's going to do that literally when he gives him a new name, Abraham. But he's also saying that this name, his name, will be known throughout the ages. Promise number four. So that you will be a blessing. So that so that is, an, is, a, is a connecting word for us. It connects the fourth promise to the first three. Promises one through three are established so that Abraham will be a blessing for others. So because of the nation that comes from Abram, because of the blessing that God gives to Abram, because of his name, Abram will be a blessing to others. And then promises five and six come in kind of a, a, a pair. They're two sides almost inseparable sides of of the promised coin. Look at verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and who dishonors you, I will curse. Now we're going to see this unfolding throughout the rest of the Old Testament, but I want to point something out here, the reason why this promise is important. This is important to Abram because Abram is leaving behind the protections, the safety of his tribe, right? And God is saying, I know you're leaving that behind. I know you're leaving behind the safety of your people, but I promise you, I'll protect you. And I'll do that by blessing those who help you so that there will be incentive for others to help you. And I will punish those who harm you so that there will be deterrent so that others would not want to harm you. The Lord is promising 
Abram here, this, uh, this, 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 this uh, protection and deterrent for the future gives him a reason to trust that going will not mean his certain demise. And then it gives a seventh promise. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now this is, this is a really important promise for us. This is a separate promise from the earlier so that you will be a blessing. So that one, you personally, you, Abraham, you will be a blessing to others. This one in you is the blessing that is to come. So this is, this is different. This is a greater promise whose fulfillment will take much, much longer. God is saying all of the families of the earth shall be blessed in you. And he's going to repeat this again when we get to chapter 22, and we'll see that he means that through Abraham's offspring, the families of the earth shall be blessed. In Abram is the offspring, the savior of the world. The Christ is coming through Abram. The Holy Spirit is coming through the Christ. The blessing will go to the nations. All seven of these promises are sermon series in themselves. Right? So you're just getting a little glimpse here. They, they are, they're all threads that are in spool form here in chapter 12. These are the spools of thread. These seven promises are the spools of thread through which God will weave together the tapestry of the story of redemption from here throughout the rest of the Bible. So don't underestimate, don't, uh, don't undervalue these seven promises, but they will come up again and again and again and again throughout Genesis, so we're not going to over-preach them today. The point, though, the point of these promises here, simultaneous with Abram's call, is to show that when God called Abram and said, go into the unknown land, he didn't just send him into nothingness. He sent him with the promises. He sent him with something to look forward to. He sent him with, sent him with a hope, didn't he? God called him and said something better. that You can't see right now is out there. You're going to have to trust me can't see it now. It's out there in the unknown, out there in the future. And what happens? Well, what is Abram going to do? Abraham believed God. How do we know he believed God? Look at verse 4. Let's keep going in our passage. We know we believe God because Abraham... I can, I'm going to mix those up. I'm just, if, I will, I'll interchange them as we go along. So for those of you who don't know, Abram will later become Abraham. And so I interchange... The names accidentally. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. Now I told you we're going to talk about faith. This is faith. Hebrews 11 says, And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise. How do we know it's faith? The Bible says it's faith. So God's, God's immediate grace toward Abram in calling him and his promises of future grace to Abram are the grounding for Abraham's faith. Abraham's faith isn't rooted in nothingness. It's not something Abraham conjured up. The faith comes from God's grace and God's promises. And Abraham's faith is the grounding, the source from which the obedience will come, the going. Abraham's faith was the amen to God's promises. That's what amen means, I believe. Abram's faith and his obedience coming from his faith was the amen to God's promises. That's why Abraham went. 
But in the next few verses, we're given a few reasons why he should not have gone. Look at the second part of verse 4. Number one reason that Abraham should not have gone, or Abram should not have gone, is that he's 75 years old. Second reason that he should not go, we find in verse 5. Abram still has Sarai as his wife. Remember Sarai from last week? She's barren. How's God going to make a nation out of an old man and his barren wife? That's a reason not to go. Number three reason not to go, we see in verse 6. The Canaanites are in that land. This land that the Lord is taking Abram to is already inhabited. How is God going to provide for this new nation in a place that is inhabited by another nation? And from a human estimation, those are three very strong reasons not to believe God. That's what we're seeing here. And yet, Abram believes God. What is, what is compelling him to do this? When you have the certainty and the security of family and the visible promise of visible inheritance, real land, you see your crops growing and you see all your sheep and you're there in Haran. And when by human calculation, there's a 0% chance of inheriting a land that doesn't belong to your family, by definition, Right? Inheritance is something you get from your father. He's going away from his father to another land that belongs to other fathers. There's 0% likelihood that he will inherit that land from those people. And when, according to science, the bearing of children to a previously barren and now postmenopausal wife is impossible, what compels Abram to believe that God's promises are true? And we might say, well, it's faith. Faith is the most important thing, and there's some truth to that. I want to challenge you to think a little bit deeper. Go the next level down. Lots of people have faith. Muhammad and Joseph Smith had faith that the angels speaking to them were telling them the truth. An atheist has faith that there's no God. He certainly hopes that there's no God. He hopes that there will be no accountability for what he's done in this life, and so he lives out his belief in that hope. That's faith. A stock market investor has faith that the market will continue to increase. A real estate investor has faith that land will always hold value. An airplane pilot has faith that the Bernoulli principle will continue to hold true throughout the flight. A progressivist has faith, even though they can't see the future effects of creating an entirely new morality. They have faith that that unseen outcome will be better than the status quo. That's faith. Faith is ubiquitous. Everyone has faith in something. But is all faith saving faith? It's not, is it? We say we are saved by grace alone through faith alone, but the reality is... Faith alone is worthless. It is the object of our faith that makes faith saving faith. If Abram's brother, Nahor, had told him, go to the land I will show you, and then he made those seven promises, 
then it still would have been upon faith that Abram would have gone into that unknown land. His faith would have been in his brother. But here's the problem. His faith would have been worthless, wouldn't it? It would have been foolish. It would have been reckless to go to Canaan upon Nahor's guidance because Abram's brother could in no way secure those seven promises. Or if one of the priests of the moon god Nanar that we learned about last week, if one of those priests had told Abram, go south to Canaan to receive this inheritance, then it would have been faith in the soothsaying of those priests if he would have gone. But again, it would have been foolish. Because neither the moon god nor any priest of the so-called moon god could secure the promises that had been given. Those seven promises could be made by anyone. I could make you those seven promises, couldn't I? But you would be foolish to believe me. Those seven promises made to Abram could only be kept by one person, God himself. Only God could, 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 could secure the seven promises. Only God, most high, the creator of the womb and the giver of life could make a nation out of an old man and his barren wife. Only God could bring blessing to a foreigner in a strange land. Only God could promise land to Abram that was currently possessed by another people because God is the one who made the land. The whole earth is his. Only the God of eternity could make that foreigner's future offspring a blessing to the nations of the future. Only the the, the God of eternity could do that. You see, the value of Abram's faith was not the fact that he had faith. Abram wasn't saved by the mere act of believing. There is no wisdom, there is no eternal value in believing your brother or pagan priests who cannot secure these types of promises. The value of Abram's faith isn't found in Abram's faith, but in the object of Abram's faith, God himself. Abram believed God. Abram wasn't putting his faith in faith. He wasn't putting his faith in the promises. He was putting his faith in God. B.B. Warfield says it like this. Saving power resides exclusively not in the act of faith or the attitude of faith or in the nature of faith, but in the object of faith. So when Abram believed what God told him, despite those circumstances that we see in verses 4 through 7, it wasn't foolishness for Abram to believe that. Because he knew God, and he knew that God was the only one who could possibly secure those promises. Imagine for a moment, you're in a grocery store, with the cost of groceries lately, it's a bit of a burden, and you've got your cart filled to the brim, and someone just random walks up to you, says, you can just go ahead and push your cart right out that door when you're finished shopping. Don't bother paying. You don't do it, do you? I hope you don't. And for this illustration to work, you have to imagine that you're in a state where shoplifting is still illegal and the law is enforced. All right, so so you're, you're picturing that with me. You probably would not bother listening to that person. You would not leave the store without paying because in all likelihood, that person has no standing, no authority to make such a promise to you and no ability to, to fulfill the promise of free groceries. But... If Trader Joe himself or Mr. Albertson or Vaughn himself tells you, walk out the door, and I assure you, 
your groceries are on me today and from this day forth forevermore, that's an entirely different scenario, isn't it? You believe the owner of the store. You show your faith in his word, in his promise, and his authority and his power by walking out the door. Abraham believed God because he knew that God is the only one who could secure those promises. So let's talk about salvation for a moment. On whose authority can anyone speak about things not yet seen? Only on the authority of the one who has seen the unseen. Only the one who inhabits eternity can tell you and me anything about eternity. Only the king of the heavenly kingdom can invite you into the heavenly kingdom. If, if, if you're making bets today based on human ideas, even if they are inspiring, even if they come from cartoon princesses, even if those ideas feel right, friend, your faith is ill-advised. It is not saving faith. And if you believe that your salvation is, to, is determined by being good enough, how do you know that what you're doing is good? How will you know how much good work is good enough? Who told you? Who are you believing? When it comes to eternity, things like salvation and heaven and hell and the resurrection and the new creation, we really only have one choice upon who to believe. We must believe God through his word. The Father, Son, and Spirit is the only one with the knowledge and the expertise to speak about things not yet seen by us. So, so when we hear in the word of God, as we read in Genesis 8, that every intention of man's heart is evil from his youth, then we know he's talking about you and me. And that's true because only he can see into our hearts. Only God is the authority to tell us what is evil and what is sinful, and what is good, and what is righteous. Because only God is righteous. And only God made us. And only God knows the ideal, the good, the perfect, the beautiful. And when we hear in the word of God that forgiveness for that wickedness is only found in Jesus Christ, because Romans says, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, then we must listen to him because our sin is against him and his love is toward us. He is the only one who can forgive us. We can't, as we saw in, in, in chapter 11, we can't force God's grace onto us through building Babylite towers or our own good works. That blessing only comes from God. And if God tells us that the resurrection of Christ is for us, that Christ rose from the dead, and at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end, then he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, that we must believe him. Because only God can see into that future. Only God knows that our salvation and our eternity is bound up in Christ. See, our faith, the Christian faith in Christ, is exactly like Abraham's. We believe in Christ because we believe God's word to us. And again, you might say, well, how do you know it's God's word? 
Will I get a burning in my bosom? No, that's heartburn. Will, will I get a feeling? Will I, will I just get this tingling sense? Well, I had a feeling the Padres would be the Phillies. <laughs> Your feelings, like my feelings, are unreliable. Just accept that and your life will go so much better. Your feelings, your emotions, your senses are unreliable. You will know it's God's word the way that Abram and the prophets and the disciples knew. His sheep hear his voice and they follow him. Abram hears the voice of God. He hears the promises of God. And through hearing the word of Christ, that gospel, the promises of the gospel, faith is created in him by God. And he believes God and he obeys. He, he leaves his father's house and he goes into the unknown land. Today, if you hear the voice of God in the hope of Christ, listen to him. Leave the comfort of your sin. Leave behind trusting in yourself. Leave behind that searching for acceptance among others. Leave behind trusting in your own abilities. Begin to trust the Lord. Believe, believe him. Believe that in Christ there is the forgiveness of sins. Believe that in Christ there is renewal and new life. Believe that in following Christ there is joy everlasting. Believe that in Christ there is an inher- eternal inheritance. Because these are the things that God promised. And begin to follow Christ. Abram left behind his father's land. And he did that for an unknown place, as we saw in Hebrews. But as we continue looking at our text, we find that it's not until he arrives in this land that he even knows he's in the right place. It's not until he arrived here that that the Lord confirms his promise by appearing to him. Look at verses 5 through 7. When they came to the land of Canaan, So who knows how long they've been walking. But when they come to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. Now this place we we find later in scriptures is is, is a hill. So it's high up on a hill. He's underneath this massive, sprawling probably oak tree and that's where the lord appears to abram this appearance of the lord to abram is a confirmation for him he heard the voice of the lord in mesopotamia and without seeing the lord he believed the lord faith comes by hearing hearing through the word of christ but now abram's reward his encouragement to keep going his affirmation that he's on the right track in obeying god comes in seeing the Lord. We, we, we don't see this yet in Scripture. This is actually a really special moment. It's, and it comes just kind of like as an, as an offhand comment here. But I want you to notice something. That this, the one who made the promises that we saw, those seven promises has manifest himself to Abram in bodily form, and Abram gets pretty excited about it. The the reward for Abram, as we see in this this passage, is not the land. Do you see that? God never told Abram that the land would be his. He 
He said, go to the land, I'll show you. And here we are in the land that God is showing him. And God has appeared on this, this plot of dirt under the oak tree, and God is showing him all this land. And he, I can just imagine God stretching his out and says, all this goes to your offspring, not you. And we think, oh, man, he left everything. He left everything behind, expecting he was going to get, you know, this nation. But this doesn't seem to bother Abram at all. He doesn't say, but, but, but I thought I was going to enjoy the land. He doesn't even seem annoyed by it. Why? Because he's just seen God. The Lord of all creation has manifested himself to Abram, and Abram is satisfied in that. Seeing the Lord is reward enough. This is assurance for him. It's like when in the Gospel of Luke, when Simeon the priest is there and he's been waiting all his life to see the Lord, see the promised one. And he says, he sings that beautiful song, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. He's gotten to hold Jesus, the Christ. My eyes have seen your salvation that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Abram, upon finding out that the land, that he's come all this way to be shown, upon finding out that it's not going to be his land, is all the more joyful when he gets the news. His faith is strengthened. And we see that that's true because he's still trusting in the Lord. He says, okay, well, I'm going to stake out all the land for those future generations. He's still trusting in the Lord's promises. Look at verse 7. So, so he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. It's a second, a repeat of that. The Lord appeared to them. So Abram builds an altar. And this altar is a testimony. Remember, this is in Shechem, under that oak tree. This altar is a testimony, a witness that God is here in this land. This is a, this is a holy place. This dirt is, is not under the curse. This is a holy place. It's also a reminder that this is Yahweh's territory. Now, why is that significant? Well, think about the, the ancient worldview. There are Canaanites in the land, right? The ancient worldview is such that different gods rule over different territories. So this territory, Canaanite territory, belongs to Canaanite gods. And when Yahweh, the Lord God, appears to Abram, and Abram builds an altar to Yahweh here on Canaanite land, Canaanite god land, this is a place of worship for the Lord. Abram is staking out territory for God. This belongs to God, not to Canaanites. This is a it's planting of the flag. And there's further evidence that Abram is living according to faith now. Even though he has seen the Lord, he's still living by faith. Because he doesn't stop in Shechem. So he arrives there. Look at verse 8. He's there in Shechem, worships the Lord, and then he keeps going. He heads down from Shechem further south to what is essentially central Canaan, the hill country. So you have Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And what does he do there? Well, he's going to build a city, right? This is his land. No. He just... He builds a tent. That's significant. 
To build a tent means this isn't permanent. That's why Hebrews says he was, he was tent camping wherever he went with Isaac later on. When he sets out his tent, he builds another altar, another place to worship the Lord, and that's another flag in the ground for future posterity. But he doesn't try and conquer the Canaanites. He doesn't try and build a city. He doesn't even build a permanent house. Abram here is, is the foil. We're supposed to compare Abram's actions to the Babylonites' actions. What did the Babylonites do? They built a city. They established it. They built a tower to the heavens. They're going to bring down God's blessing on the here and now. What's Abram doing? Building a tent and worshiping God. He's not trying to force the promises of God into the here and now. He simply believes God. God's going to fulfill his promises when God will fulfill his promises. And Abram's okay with that. That's what faith is. Trusting in the future. It belongs to God. The future belongs to God. This land belongs to God. I'm just going to trust God. Abram believes, as Hebrews says, in that future city. The heavenly city. The one with heavenly foundations. That's what he's looking forward to. He's content to live in the tent. He's content to be a sojourner in the land today because he believes God's promises will be fulfilled tomorrow. And that's the, the picture being painted for us in verse 9 as well. He journeyed on, picks up his tent, journeyed on, still going towards the Negev, the desert, the wilderness. He is a, he's a surveyor. He's our Lewis and Clark here. He's a surveyor of the land. He's a pioneer. He's staking out that future claim, an altar here, an altar there. Worship the Lord here. Worship the Lord there. It's all his land. This is all God's. That's faith. And he's trusting one day the Lord will give this to my offspring. One day my offspring will bless the nations. But for now, I'm just going to worship the Lord. That hope, the future hope is enough for Abram today. As you keep reading in the Old Testament, you'll find that all of what God promises to Abram here in chapter 12 will one day be fulfilled. And yet, as we saw in Hebrews, Abram never saw any of it. Some of it. You get some of it. But we have a lot more to read and understand about Abram, but it's not a spoiler to tell you he won't receive all the things promised. All the things promised will come to fulfillment. Abram won't won't get all of them. He'll certainly experience the blessing of God, the protection of God, but he'll go to his grave still trusting that the Lord will only one day fulfill the promise of the land and the blessing to the nations. So as you get to Joshua, this is interesting. When you get to the book of Joshua, I would encourage you to read Joshua in the next couple weeks. But you'll see there, the Israelites come into the land, coming through Jericho, and then they get to Ai, and there's some problems there. And then they get to that same place between Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. Same place where Abram is worshiping God here in our chapter. This is the first real stopping point for the nation of Israel. And what happens here at this location is that the Lord will hand over the Canaanites into Israel's hand, and then Joshua will build an altar in the same place. And they'll worship the Lord, 
And Joshua will read the law and the covenant and the blessings and the curses to God's people. And as they keep going through the book of Joshua, eventually, throughout the conquest, they make their way up to that first place that Abram was. So Abram comes in and down. They come in and up. You keep going, and they end up back there in Shechem. And there, this time, at the end of his life, Joshua preaches to the people. And what do they do? They worship the Lord. And they renew their covenant with the Lord. And Joshua's sermon there in Shechem is looking back at all that the Lord had accomplished going all the way back to Abram's call from paganism in Ur of the Chaldeans. And at the end of his sermon, at the very end of the book of Joshua, Joshua sets a stone of remembrance there in Shechem, that first place that Abram had been what we call an Ebenezer. And that will be for Israel to forever recount all that the Lord had done in fulfilling and continuing to fulfill God's promises to Abram here in chapter 12. 